So think about the defining moments of your life. Like those things that you look at and you know at some level they've shaped you, they've shaped where you've been led, they've shaped what you've done. Like here's the thing about defining moments of our life. Um, Many of them are really clear on the front end. Like there's certain things you just know this moment is going to shape me. So whether it's you had your first kid, if you are a parent in the room, and there is no moment in your life where you feel dumber than you do the moment they hand you a kid in the hospital. Can I get an amen? Like, at that moment, my IQ just decreased uh, so many levels. And I, like, literally, maybe others have more confidence than me. I just remember panic, like, why? I, I, like, I should not be taking care of a kid, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Other moments, like marriage, you know on the front end, when you're heading into that, at some level, it's going to be a defining moment. And again, you're excited, and maybe this is just me, but there's also a tinge of, like, forever is a long time. And so on the front side of that, you know, like, this is a defining moment for my life. Like, this could change everything. Graduation for some of you, you know on the front end that's a defining moment. On the negative side, like, you find yourself in the back of a police car at some point. You're like, this is going to be a defining moment in my life. Um, it, it may be the loss of something, maybe the, the breakup of a relationship, but you just kind of know on the front end that this is going to define me. And then there's other defining moments that are far less overt. Like on the front end, you, you don't really know they're defining. They're only defining in retrospect. Like in the moment, they seem kind of ordinary. It seems kind of mundane. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. And then later on, you look back to that moment and realize that that moment in some huge way shaped your life, but you had... You had no idea. Here's the thing I want to talk about for three weeks is one of the things that you see throughout the scripture is that God uses defining and what I would call divine moments, meaning from God to shape and lead our lives. You see it all throughout the scripture. And so the scripture talks a lot about seizing moments. And in fact, it talks about like the fact that moments aren't going to be here forever. It uses the analogy of they're like a vapor. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. It's not going to last very long. And so throughout the scripture, you see this whole idea, this whole weight behind seizing divine moments, chasing daylight, meaning not wasting a moment, not missing what God has, not missing what God has in front of you, because you have a limited amount of time and you have a limited amount of moments. And here's what's true if you're a follower of Jesus today, and if you're not and you're investigating, we are so glad you're here. But here's what the scripture talks about. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has given you, this is big language, but it's true, a divine destiny. God has given you a divine calling. God has invited you into a relationship with him to live life to the full. And it's not the promise of no pain, but the greatest amount of fulfillment that you can achieve is found in following Jesus and seizing what he has for your life. And so all throughout the scripture, you see that you see this idea of, of moments and the fact that we've been called to seize those moments for God's glory in a way that will impact Eternity, But here's, here's one of the prerequisites for us, is that your divine destiny is always contingent on seizing those divine moments. And in fact, in some cases, they're time sensitive. So the reason I wanted to talk about this for a few weeks is today is a defining divine moment for our church. Today is a defining moment in our history, but the thing is it has personal implications for you, if, specifically if you're a follower of Jesus, in terms of, 
of seizing your divine destiny, your divine moment as part of a bigger context, as part of a larger story, as part of something bigger that God is doing, and it, it it is a part of who you are. It's a part of what you have been called to if you've ever placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. So let me explain it this way. One day Jesus is with his guys, there's 12 of them, and one of the guys is Judas. I think they already knew he's probably off the rails and it's not going to last the whole way. But they've got 12 guys and they're outside of Caesarea Philippi and they're heading into Jerusalem. And so they're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert, it's hot. And he's with his 12 guys and I don't know what they're talking about. They're, like I said, in Caesarea Philippi that was named after Caesar Augustus. And there they are heading into Jerusalem and Jesus asks his 12 guys a question. And he basically just asks this, hey, who do people say that I am? Like, what's the word on the street about me? Which you shouldn't really ask unless you're Jesus or LeBron James or uh, like, otherwise it's like, well, nobody's really talking about you. But if you're Jesus, you can ask that question. Say, hey, what is the word on the street about me? And so they give all these crazy answers. Some people thought that he was a reincarnated prophet. Some thought that he was a reincarnated John the Baptist, all these crazy views. And so then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, but who do you guys say that I am? Who, Who do you guys think I am? And Peter, I don't think Peter raised his hand because he never raised his hand. If you read the scripture, he just blurted it out. But Peter's the first to answer, and he just says, we believe, I believe, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, listen, you didn't come up with that on your own. Like, there's no way you fully could have known that and grasped that in this moment. But Peter, on this statement, on this rock, it really meant on this statement that I am Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. On this statement, Jesus says. And and real quick, I have no idea how we know this. I have no idea how we got this information. I have no idea why this is still documented 2,000 years later, because in the moment, it must have seemed so insignificant. It must have seemed so mundane. It must have seemed so out there, because there they are, 12 dudes with no influence in the middle of the desert, outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, you, you 12 guys, Judas, you're not going to be here the whole time, you 11 guys. On that statement that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I am going to build a gathering. I'm going to build a congregation. I'm going to build a movement to the world, and it is all going to center around Jesus. And imagine they're standing there going, yeah, okay, how long till we get to Jerusalem? Like, it, it, must have not even met, it must have not even registered. It must have seemed like no big deal in the moment. It must have just flown by. I have no idea how Matthew and John and the guys even got it. Hey, Matthew, did you write that down? No, I didn't write it down. Did you write it down? I have no idea how we got here. It must have seemed so insignificant when Jesus said, listen, I'm going to build a gathering and a movement of people to the world, and nothing is going to stop it. Not my death, not your death, not the Inquisition's not the crusades, not TV evangelists, not Jesus followers who are idiots, not all the other stuff in history. I am going to build a movement to the world and nothing, nothing, nothing is going to stop it. And they had no idea. It must have seemed so insignificant. But here we are. 
They could have never even imagined it in that moment. And it's so crazy, I'll go quick because I don't want to give you a history lesson, but it's so crazy and somewhat kind of unfortunate that in our English Bible, the word that shows up is church, which was not the original word, and it's created so much misunderstanding. The word church comes from a German word, from a Dutch word, and it goes way back. But the original that Jesus talked about in Aramaic that later became the Greek ecclesia was not the, the German-Dutch term church that really means a ritualistic gathering. It means a place. Jesus never predicted a place. Jesus predicted a people. Jesus predicted a gathering. Jesus predicted an assembly that would gather and spread a movement to the world. And so you probably know the story. In the 16th century, William Tyndale came along and took the amazing amount of time to translate the scriptures into English, the English New Testament. And he gets to that word church, and he must have been kind of programmed to think, well, it's just that German-Dutch word. And then he paused somehow in the midst of that with all of his investigation and goes, that's not the word. The the original word that, that Jesus used has nothing to do with a place. It has nothing to do with some kind of ritualistic gathering. It has everything to do with a congregation, a movement, a people. Jesus didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. And so in the English translation, William Tyndale translated the correct gathering, movement to the world. And then several hundred years later, it got changed back to this this word church from the German Dutch that, that kind of infers just a place, something that you int- attend. But here's the crazy thing. Let me just go with me for a second. That if you were to put all of the groups in the world, in, in the room, all of the Baptists, all of the non-denominational people, all of the Presbyterians, all of the Episcopals, all of the whatever else, whatever other denominations they are, those who would hold true to the scriptures. If you were to put them all into a room in 2018, the only thing that they would agree about, and it wouldn't be methodology, it wouldn't be music, it wouldn't be you know, their style, it wouldn't be baptism. Christians can freaking go to war over baptism using verses, hating other people in Jesus' name. It wouldn't be any of those things. The only thing, if somehow you were able to gather all of those individuals and those tribes in one room, the only thing that they would have in common is exactly what Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago, that I am going to build an assembly, a movement, a gathering of people around the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and nothing, nothing, nothing is going to stop it. And here we are, and here you are. You literally are the fulfillment of Jesus' promise 2,000 years ago. This whole idea that we've talked about for weeks of better together and and what God has orchestrated with Horizon becoming a part of Centerpoint Church under the banner of Jesus as one body, it is a part of the fulfillment of what Jesus said he was going to do 2,000 years ago, and he is still doing it, and nothing is going to stop it. He is going to build his church. And, And here's the thing. I wish that I could, and there's no way to do this, but I wish I could get into people's living rooms right before they're about to leave to go in their mind attend somewhere and just stop them for a moment and go, this has become so, you've become so inoculated to this. This has become so routine. 
In some cases, it's become so ritualistic. We have so lost the power over time. And I wish there was some way I could stop them, stop you, stop us before we walk out the door and just remind, remind us, remind you, hey, do you know what you're caught up in? Do you know what the odds are that we're even here? Do you know how crazy it is that we've survived? And I know you've got crazy baggage and church hurt, and you've seen things done and said in Jesus' name that Jesus never signed his name to, and you've seen crazy denominational country club just stuff that has bumped you out. You've been hurt in incredible ways. You've seen the church so jacked up. But if I could just get into that living room to go, okay, but that's never what Jesus intended. And do you know how amazing this is that 2,000 years later, here we are, and Jesus predicted it. And what Jesus predicted, what Jesus said, what Jesus promised, it has happened, and it is happening all over the globe. And it's centered on one thing, him. Well, then you you know the story. Jesus dies, and then he rises from the grave. We believe in history. And then he's with his guys, Right after his death and his resurrection, just a little while after he made that promise in the middle of nowhere with his, his 12 guys, then later after his resurrection, he says this. He, he's about to peace out, go back to heaven, and right before he goes, here's what he says. You probably know these verses. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, then Jesus came to them and said, this is crazy, all authority in heaven, like all authority, which That's a massive statement. You're either crazy or it's true. There's no in-between. Jesus, I I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, again, just, just try to move yourself out of your familiarity, which at some level I hate, and imagine you're there because we so lose the power of this. Now there's maybe 120 of them. Right after Jesus has died and, and risen, and they're all fugitives. Jesus is a fugitive. They're in the middle of nowhere. That they, they have no influence and no power, and Jesus says to them, listen, I, I want you to make disciples of all nations, the whole world. And they're like, oh, Jesus, do you know how big the world is? And Jesus is like, shut up, I'm not done yet. You don't even know how big the world is. And then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And people will argue about that for generations. Just do it anyway. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, this is so huge, I'm with you. Meaning, God's always going to be with you. Jesus' power is always going to be present. But this is a conditional promise of there is going to be a special manifestation of my power when you come around this mission and this movement and you make disciples of all people and lead them to follow and love Jesus. I will be with you in that always to the very end of the age. And then he left. I'll be with you always. See ya. Why are we here? Like, how could this have worked? How did this survive? How did this come true? How in the world do we have four accounts of the life of Jesus that have been preserved and there's so many manuscripts backing them up? How have we even heard the name? 
Because in one defining divine moment that must have seemed so insignificant, Jesus said, and he did not stutter, and he did not blink, I am going to build my movement, my congregation, my assembly, and nothing is going to stop it. And it's going to center around one thing, Jesus. And I want you to go into all the world, you fugitives of the law, with no power and no influence. And some of your IQs are not that high. And I want you to make disciples. I want you to change the world. I mean, come on, imagine. We, we lose the power. There they are, fugitives of the law. They're in what's known today as the Holy Land. It's not really holy. It's just really hot. It's in the middle of nowhere. They have no influence. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, 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 make disciples of the world. And they're like, how? What? Actually, let's go around and do a survey. How many nations do you guys know? I can come up with five. Who's going to listen? What are we going to say? How is this, this going to happen? How is this going to move forward? None of us in this circle have been more than 30 miles from home. Have you ever thought about it? How did it survive? How are we here? How did it last? Because Jesus made a promise in one divine moment that was going to change history, that he was going to build his church and nothing was going to stop it. And Jesus has been at the epicenter of the movement of the local church for 2,000 years. And you can believe or not believe. You can engage or not engage. You can marginalize or not marginalize. It does not matter because nothing will stand in his way and he will build his church and not even death is going to stop it. Thank you to the four of you for encouraging me. And then, and then you know this part, the disciples go to the upper room, right? If you, you've heard this, if you haven't, you can go read this for yourself. I'm giving you a whole abbreviation of the New Testament real quick. The disciples go to the New Testament right after Jesus ascended back up into heaven, and they're in an upper room, and, and the scripture says the Holy Spirit descends, which may be kind of weird to you, but literally they're, they're invaded with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Now the Holy Spirit is in them to empower them. I've said many times, these guys are cowards before Easter weekend. Mark's running out of the garden naked. Peter's cowering to a schoolgirl in a courtyard. All of them are denying the fact that they even know Jesus. And then right after Easter weekend, because of not what they believed, but what they saw, they began, and come on, we lose, again, we lose the power of this. These cowards and runners, people who are so afraid, begin to pour into the streets of Jerusalem. And just think about this for a second. This is just, a, this is just several weeks after Jesus was crucified. It's in the same city. These are the same people who put him to death. These are the same people who rarely eroded Jesus through a false trial, and now his followers, who could suffer the same fate, go into that same city with those same people, and they begin to become bold proclaimers of not what they believed, but what they saw. In fact, here's a three-point summary of their message in Acts. Hey, all you guys killed him. He came back to life. You might want to reevaluate what you believe about him. <laughs> hey, you... You guys, I know I'm like, you guys in the city of Jerusalem, you were, Philip, you were there. Frank, you were there. We saw you. You were a part of it. You guys killed him. You just need to know he came back to life. If you don't believe me, go to the tomb, produce a body, go interview some eyewitnesses. He came back to life. You might want to reevaluate this. Here's what Acts says. So, 
So incredible. Acts 2.21, fellow Israelites, this is Peter, the Peter who was cowering and scared to death a couple weeks before. Now, Israelites, listen to this. Now, come on. Just some of you have been around the church for so long. You forget the power of this. Imagine that you're there. Imagine that you saw all of this happen. You smelled the smells. You heard the sights. You know the excruciating events that happened. You know the terror and the horror that was brought to Jerusalem and what was and is brought to Jerusalem through the Roman Empire. And there you are. And Peter is in the same city. They just crucified his leader. And he's like, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, by wonders, by signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, like I, you guys know about the miracles. I don't need to convince you about that. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. And God's deliberate foreknowledge means nothing was spiraling out of control. God orchestrated this. And you, like you guys, again, Philip, I'm talking eye contact. Philip, you were there. And, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And then he goes into this other little part of the message. And he's like, hey, hey, Israelites, I know how much you value and respect David. Remember David? Remember David? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when David died? Yeah. Well, David stayed dead. Not Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. And then verse 32, and God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of this. And then skip down to Acts 3.15. And by the way, same city, we know you could haul us off and kill us too because you just did it to our leader, but you killed the author of life, you guys. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of what happened. And that should have ended the movement. I mean, they're all listening to that, these guys going, but they're just as crazy as their leader. But they couldn't deny it. They couldn't somehow find a way around it because Jesus rose from the dead in that same city and it was undeniable. And the scripture says that in that city where it all went down, thousands, 3,000 people began to become followers of Jesus. And come on, I say this all the time here, but I, I just want to go with it for those of you who are new in the room or listening or watching somewhere, is that they did not go into the streets of Jerusalem and suddenly get bold and courageous because of something they believed or Jesus' teaching. It was because of something they saw. It's the only reason that the movement survived the first century. Here's how I put it in my notes. The Jesus movement started not because of what Jesus' followers believed, but because of what they saw, a resurrected Jesus. That is the hinge point of all we believe. And, and this is just side notes, not in my notes. This is what the church has to get back to. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of this because we moved into a place where we thought we had a majority and an influence that we really never had, and we strayed away from the central teaching of the scripture. The foundation, the epicenter of our faith is not even the teachings of Jesus. It is the resurrection of Jesus. It is the hinge point for everything. 
So if you're not sure if you believe, don't investigate Noah and don't look at where the dinosaurs went and don't look at some of the seeming inconsistencies of the Old Testament or the Torah. The focal point is, did Jesus rise from the grave? And if he did, it settles every other question. We've said this so many times, but I I just want to repeat it again. I, I say this at least once a series. Is that if a guy can predict his own death and his own resurrection and then pull it off, a rule for your life is just you can trust that person. That's our theology. Are there questions? Are there seeming inconsistencies? Yes, there are. But go look at history. If you're skeptical, go today, leave right now, and and go begin to investigate some reputable sources. It is an historical fact that Jesus rose from the grave in history, and everything hinges on that because when he walked out of the grave alive, it validated everything he said about life, and it validated everything that he said about his life, and the church was born in that moment as the fulfillment of Jesus promise that I am going to build a gathering, a movement, an assembly around the fact that I am alive and it's going to dominate the world and nothing will stop it. And then you probably know what happens, persecution begins to break out. And and all of those guys that at some level are are, are fearless, there's a bunch of others on the periphery that that are just kind of struggling, and and it's called the diaspora. They begin to to move out of Jerusalem, but not very far. They move just far enough to get away from the persecution, and then they stop, put their feet up. Some of them get comfortable, and the movement stops moving. I mean, just shortly after Jesus died, rose, and, and then made this incredible statement, and then goes and ascends back into heaven, and the movement starts to move, all of a sudden, it starts to slow down. And so I, I don't know how this went, so part of what I'm going to say next, I'm going to make up. So um, if you're taking notes, put your pens down. If you're taking notes, put your pens down. Well, what I'm a, I, th- this happened, but I don't know how it happened. But at some point... Our heavenly father looks at Jesus, who's at the right hand of the father in heaven. He's like, listen, your movement is not moving. Your your growing gathering of people is not growing. It's stopped. They've gotten comfortable. They're all kind of huddled up in their tribe. They move past the immediate persecution in Jerusalem, but it's it's just dead. It is not moving. So Jesus, I think you need to go find some new leaders. These guys are not getting it done. I think you need to go find somebody who is fearless and courageous and a little type A and just get it done. He's not afraid to get on a boat and go and risk his life. Like you need somebody like that to get this movement going again because it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And so Jesus, by the way, you you should go among the group of the Pharisees who actually helped crucify Jesus and you should select this guy from that group just to stick it to him. Go get one of them and convert him. And, and, Jesus, if he does a good job, I'll let him write like half the New Testament. <laughs> and our Heavenly Father is with Jesus, and he's like, well, how, how about that guy? How, how, about, how about Saul of Tarsus? And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? This guy is trying to undo everything that I spent all that time doing. 
If you don't know the story, this guy became the greatest enemy of what was known as the way in the first century of Christianity. He oversaw the death of Christians. He tried to end the movement, and he was becoming very successful at it. He was a single-handed wrecking crew. And so Jesus is like, are, are you kidding me? Like, this, this guy is undoing everything. And, and his heavenly father is like, what? Well, you should have picked from the beginning. He is single-handedly dismantling the whole thing. So go get him. And there's this moment. I don't know if you know about it, but Paul is way outside of Jerusalem. He's going toward Damascus, and, and he's on a donkey. And out of nowhere, Jesus knocks him off his and onto his Because somebody like Paul, who later Saul would be known as Paul, like he, he's not going to come forward during an invitation. He's not going to raise his hand. Like you got to knock him off a donkey. You got to have some kind of bright light. There has to be some audible voice. And so God comes, Jesus literally comes to Paul and says, okay, Paul, I have an assignment for you. And the greatest enemy of the church, the greatest enemy of Christianity becomes a Christian and spends about 15 years with all of Jesus' immediate guys and believe that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And he begins to move the movement forward. Why? Because Jesus said he was going to build his church. And if you don't get it done, he'll find somebody else. And if one system's not working, he'll find another one. And if one sect has kind of grown to a place where they're just huddled up in tribes, he'll initiate a new one because he promised he would build his church and nothing was going to stop it. And so he comes to a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, and says, hey, you're on my team. By the way, I'm going to change your name because I'm Jesus. I can do that. And you're going to become the greatest church planner in history. Exactly what God's done with some of you. Like you, you were maybe in a place where your story is similar to Paul's, where you were headed in one direction. And God's like, nope. I, I have something else for you. And he ended maybe a career, changed a career, moved you out of a city, closed a door, and you couldn't see how God was working, but then opened another door because God is so committed to build his church. He will interrupt plans. And he will interrupt careers, and he will interrupt agendas, and he will bring churches together because whether you participate or not, or whether you believe or not, Jesus is going to build his church, and nothing is going to stop it in history. And then eventually, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and everybody's afraid of him. They're like, just imagine the weight of this. Paul would walk into conference rooms later on. And he'd be around people where they didn't have a husband anymore as a result of Paul. Families were split apart because of Paul. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and everybody's afraid and eventually over time they begin to trust him. And so again, this is another part that I'm making up. It happened, but I don't know how it happened. But, but Paul gets in a room with, with all of the guys that are kind of still huddled up in Jerusalem or just past Jerusalem. And I think he picks a big map and puts it on a table and says, guys, we have got to get this thing moving. We have got to do what Jesus promised. We, we have got to move with what Jesus predicted. And so Paul puts a huge map on the table and he puts, I don't know, maybe a little red dot around Jerusalem. Again, I'm making this up. And just says, hey, guys, here's what we'll do. We'll divide up the world. You guys, you take Jerusalem. I'll take everything else. 
That's exactly what happened. And Paul begins to plant these little ecclesias, these little gatherings, these groups of people, these assemblies, these congregations, the, these little movements all over the Mediterranean rim. And, and you maybe know the stories. I mean, Paul is a guy that you cannot shake. I mean, the Roman authorities, hey, Paul, we're going to kill you. Great. I'll be with Jesus. Okay, we're going to leave you here. Okay, I'll sit in prison. I'll write letters. I'll change the world. Like, what are you going to do to me? And Paul begins to plant churches all over the Mediterranean rim, and he's shipwrecked. He's bitten by a snake. He's falsely accused. He's imprisoned. All kind of stuff is happening. I mean, none of it is easy, but the church just begins to move and begins to flourish. Can I just say this to some of you? This is off the path, but listen. Opposition is not an indicator that you are missing your divine moments. Opposition may be evidence of seizing your divine moment. Just because there's a strong headwind in your direction does not mean that God's not in it. And Paul begins to move forward full of faith, even though he had no idea of the outcome, going, okay, this is what I've been called to do. This movement is everything. The world needs to know what has happened and what is found and what is offered in Jesus. So I'm going to take this thing forward. But when he goes back to Jerusalem, it's so crazy because he goes back a second time. Everybody's telling Paul, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem, man. It's not safe. Like, they may end your life. It may not end well for you. And Paul's like, seriously? Like, seriously? Do you think that I'm afraid of death? Do you think that I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me? I serve a God of resurrection. What do I have to be afraid of? We, we talked about this before, but can I just say this to you, Western American church a few of you may be listening at other places in the world, literally, and so maybe this isn't characteristic of you, but can I just say this to us because I need the reminder? Church, what do we have to be afraid of? We serve a God of resurrection, meaning if Jesus has the final say over death, Jesus has the final say over everything. One day, everyone and everything will bow its knee to Jesus. Cancer will bow its knee to Jesus. Alzheimer's will bow its knee to Jesus. Mental illness will bow its knee to Jesus. The hurt that you've experienced will bow its knee to Jesus. Opposition will bow its knee to Jesus. And the same power behind the promise that I am going to build my church and nothing is going to stop it. And the same power behind I am going to raise myself from the dead is the same power behind every single promise that Jesus has made you. I am never going to leave you or forsake you. I am never going to pull out on you. I am never going to not see you through. You are never going to move beyond the reach of my grace and my love. I am going to turn every bit of your pain into purpose if you will let me. I am going to give you a hope, and I'm going to give you a future. And you can take that to the bank because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and predicted this movement is the same Jesus behind every single promise that he has made to you. There is nothing to be afraid of. You and we serve a God of resurrection. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and exactly what his friends predicted happened. Paul's arrested. He's put into a prison, which was a weird thing because 
They find out later he's a Roman, and so they've got to send him back to Rome to be tried. That was a whole just weird thing. And generally, you either served, you served the state or they killed you. There was no prison. Like, we don't have time for prison. But, but Paul was in this weird in-between place where he got put in prison, kind of basically under house arrest. And Paul had no idea. He, he just, in, in that prison, he begins to write letters called the, the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. He has no idea. He has no idea he's writing those letters. I mean, how could he? They're going to become the most widely read literature in all of history. He's going to change the Western view of relationships and women. He's going to change how people interact and relate with God. He has no idea. He's just writing letters. Boom, 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 boom. I got nothing else to do. How could he even have imagined what was going to happen? And then one morning, as usually was the case during that time period, Paul's led out of his prison cell. And he's taken out as the sun is rising, and he's most likely taken right near the emperor's gate beside it, to the right of where Nero's circus would be, out to the area where they would behead criminals during that time period. And early in the morning, as Paul's being let out, I wonder if he wondered, did it work? Is it going to survive? Will my letters get out of this prison cell? All the churches that I planted around the Mediterranean Rim, do you think they're going to last? Do you think it worked? I'll come back to that in a second. If, if you were to go to Rome today, um, if you want to buy my ticket, I'll go tomorrow. But if you want to go to Rome today, there's so many amazing things that you could see. And if you're, if you're a history nerd like me, like you cannot get enough. And, and like when, you, when you go there, there there's all of these, these ancient um, structures that, I mean, there's just so much history there, and, and, but there's one thing, and I was kind of, this was presented to me years ago in seminary, and I just, if, if I were there, this is the one thing that I think would blow me away, that would amaze me more than anything else, but it's not amazing to most people. In fact, most, most people miss it, but it's like the thing that I think gives weight behind what Jesus predicted in that one divine moment, it gives so much weight to what's happened in history. Like, you, you can go to Rome and, and you can visit the Roman catacombs. I mean, that's awesome. That's not really it. And, and you can go to Rome and you can visit the, the forum and, and that's amazing, but that's still, like, that's, to me, that's not the thing. You, you can visit the palace of Tiberius and there's so much history around that and that, that's incredible. You can visit the Vestal of Virgins if you're in middle school, you're like, what? It's not what you think. It's just where they house all the wills and stuff. And then you can go to the Colosseum. And, and like, that's, that's huge. But it's not just about the Colosseum. This, this place that was a, a site of death and destruction for four centuries, where they put Christians to death. But what, what's more amazing about just the Colosseum if you understand, and most of you do, everything that happened in the first century and for subsequent centuries, everything that went down, all that, all that the, the church faced, the thing that is so amazing about it is there's, there's really one main entrance that they call the emperor's gate as you go into the Colosseum today. And as you walk into that gate in the Colosseum, here's, here's what you see. 
I'm so weird, but it makes me so emotional. Let me just say it. When you wonder whether it matters, when you wonder whether God's working in your life, when you wonder whether he's going to fulfill his promises, when, you, when you're sacrificing and you're serving, and we all have those moments, like, is it making any difference? When you're sitting with a group of kids in a circle, and you're like, they're not getting any of it. When you're with middle school and high school kids at camp, and you're going, I, I just... I don't know if I've wasted the last three years or not. Like, there's no, there's no huge moment that goes, okay, you're making a difference. You're impacting their history. Like, I have no idea. But if you ever wonder, if you ever wonder whether God is working, if you ever wonder whether God will fulfill his promises, there's a cross hanging over the emperor's gate in the Roman Colosseum. Let's go back to Paul for a second. Imagine Paul being led away knowing that within minutes his fate is going to be decided and they're going to extinguish his life. Imagine if you're there with Paul and imagine if somehow you could just whisper in his ear as they're leading him out to the right of Nero's circus and he knows what's about to happen. What if you could whisper in his ear and just go, Paul, Paul, don't worry. Don't worry. Paul, one day... People are going to come to this city from all over the world. And they're not going to ask, hey, where is Julius Caesar buried? Nobody's really going to care. Where is Nero buried? Not that many people are going to care. Hey, Paul, several thousand years from now, one day people are going to come into this same spot where this is about to happen. And they're going to ask, hey, where was the apostle Paul imprisoned? Where was Peter buried? Hey, one day, Paul, this is hard for you to believe. Nobody at this moment knows who your friend Peter is. Nobody knows his name. He doesn't visit this city till the end of his life. One day, Peter is going to have the greatest monument you can imagine. This extraordinary structure built right over Nero's circus just to stick it to Nero where all of those Christians died. And everybody is going to know the name of Peter. Nobody's going to know the name of the emperor during this time. You don't know it, most of you. Claudius. Hey, Paul, one day, one day, don't worry. Paul, one day, there's going to be crosses adorning thousands of buildings in this city. And those crosses are not going to represent Roman crucifixions. Those crosses are going to represent one singular crucifixion of your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, don't worry. Paul, one day, one day, you can't even imagine this, all over the world, in every language, every December, people are going to speak the name Caesar Augustus, known as the greatest emperor in the world at that time. Everybody looked up to Caesar Augustus. He was considered divine. Listen, one day, every December, in every language across every continent, people are going to speak the name Caesar Augustus, but they're not going to be telling the story of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus will be a footnote to the Jewish carpenter, Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. Listen, one day, Paul, so crazy, before you go, Everybody's going to want to name their kid Peter. Everybody's going to want to name their kid John. They're going to name their dogs Caesar and Nero. 
Hey, Paul, hey, Paul, before you go. One day, one day just over this wall, there's going to be a coliseum. That for four centuries is going to be the place of unimaginable horror and death and destruction and people giving up their lives for the name of Jesus. But Paul, you can't even imagine this. When this Colosseum is about to be torn down, when it's almost beyond repair, when it's graffitied everywhere, that place, that site of death and destruction is going to be dedicated to the martyrs who died for their faith, for your resurrected Jesus. Paul, don't worry. And Paul, one day there will be no Roman Empire, but the church will be in every nation of the world, just like Jesus predicted. Could he even have imagined? Could he have had any idea? Did, did they have any idea in that divine moment that seemed so insignificant when Jesus said to basically 11 guys, you are going to start a movement to the world? Could they have even imagined? Could they even have imagined how God would use them seizing their divine moment in history? You know how it happened. Because Jesus made a promise and Jesus will fulfill his promise. And in that divine moment, he said, I am going to build my church. And he meant it. And death and destruction and persecution and crazy Christians are not going to stop it. And now we have been invited to play a part. And you will do more profitable things with your life you will not do anything more significant than being on mission with your Savior to build the local church because it has been the epicenter of Jesus' activity for 2,000 years. And part of seizing your divine moment, your divine calling individually is wrapped up in a bigger context. It's wrapped up in a bigger story. It's wrapped up in a bigger, hey, this is what I've called you to do. I want you to go into art and entertainment and business, and I want you to build things. I want you to create systems, and I want you to raise kids. But you are the church. You are the church as you gather, and you are the church as you scatter. And this is my plan A until Jesus comes back. And as messed up as it is and as dysfunctional, as it is sometimes, it is my bride, it is my thing, it is my mission, and it is going to fulfill its purpose until I come back, and I am inviting you to be a part of it. So, so listen, as we close, if you're single, I just want to encourage you on this. Get a date. <laughs> Finish your education. Do whatever God's called you to do. Serve the church. You are the church, and God will use it to fulfill your divine calling wherever it takes you. If you're, if you're an empty nester somewhere, go play golf. Go to the beach. Do not freaking put your feet up on an ottoman and just chill the remainder of these days because you may have the greatest impact of your life, and you are the church, and you don't retire from that. And if you're 30s, 40s, 20s, you, you've got a couple kids and you're like, life is so crazy, I'll do that when life slows down. Life will never slow down. And you have been called to take the baton of the local church in your generation and your kids, if I could just plead with you, your kids cannot wait for you. Too much is at stake for them. 
And so as we finish, now is our time to seize our divine moment in our city and our community. To do what God has called us to do and to be a little part of the story of Jesus building his church in our city just as he predicted. And so as we end, I don't have a lot of time. I just want to give you four things that we decide to do now as a gathering. Let's decide now that we're going to be contributors and not consumers. Too much is at stake. Too many of us have forgotten. It's practical here. Get into next steps. Serve others with others. And this isn't even my primary point, but it's just you moving to a place to practically go, I want to be a part of this body. I want to play my role. I want Jesus to use me and realize that this is a part of what Christ has called you to. And I know for some of you, somebody, one person in many cases has ruined this whole thing for you. You saw some incredibly terrible things done in the name of Jesus, the name of the church. But listen, if one person can ruin it for you, how much power and potential is in these rooms today to rewrite that story for our city? Let's decide now that success is gonna be measured by our impact on the 60,000 unchurched, unreached, de-churched within a few mile radius of us. It's not how many attendance we average on a weekend basis. It's in the coming five, 10 years, do we hammer a dent in that number? Because everybody's asking a question. What do I do with my past? How do I find hope? And Jesus has come to planet earth to die and rise from the grave. And he wants to give us hope in a future, even if it kills him. And he did. And we have the responsibility to move that message into our city, into our community. Let's decide now that we will continue to be the safest place for anybody, from anywhere, with any background, and struggling with any problem. This is not a country club. This is a hospital on mission for people to be restored and fixed and brokenness to be brought back together in the name of Jesus. And let's decide now that we will continue to have one focus, and it is not me. And it is not you. And it is not the name of Centerpoint. It's Jesus. And if we do, and if we come around this message, and if we seize for whatever reason what God has decided to do through us, through a radio ministry that right now is reaching thousands of people and has the potential to grow way beyond that, to bringing churches together, to on and on it goes. And we are not worthy of that, but we have been called to be stewards of that. And if we come around the message of Jesus, Jesus is going to do what he's predicted for 2,000 years. And so with that in mind, Paul's words. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You serve a resurrected Jesus. And always, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The cross hangs over the emperor's gate of the Roman Colosseum. Because Jesus in one divine moment predicted that he, was, he would build his church and that nothing, nothing would stop it. And now it's our turn. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me? 
all over the house. And this is gonna be short. It's gonna be about 30 seconds here, but I want as heads bowed and eyes closed, just in really respect for those around you, I wanna offer the invitation that has been at the epicenter of the church for 2,000 years, and that is a relationship with Jesus through faith. And so the scripture just says this, that it is so uncomplicated that we stumble over it. But if you, in a moment, come to the place to say, I believe, I believe that Jesus died for all my sin, and I believe that Jesus rose from the grave, and I'm not trusting my ability to be good enough, I'm trusting what Jesus has done. The scripture says simply believing that in your heart and mind, making that transfer of trust from you to what Jesus has done. The scripture says you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be given a new life and nothing can undo that. You will become a son and a daughter of God adopted into his family. And so if that's you and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, whether you're listening, watching somewhere or in the house, it's not the prayer that saves you, but I'm just gonna pray and you can pray after me right where you are. And here's what I wanna do. We never do this with heads bowed, eyes closed. I want everybody to audibly pray with me. And for some of you, this is that moment where you're gonna place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So all over the house, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sin. I believe that you rose again. And right now, I'm not trusting in me. I'm trusting in what you've done for me. all over the house with heads bowed and eyes closed. If this was the first time you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, would you just lift up your hand with nobody looking around to go, today was my day. Today was that moment where it just clicked and I realized that it's true and I placed my faith and my trust in what he's done for me. Anybody in the house with an uplifted hand would say, today that was me and today I placed my faith and trust in Jesus. Right on, amazing. Anybody else would say, today is the day where I've placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. Don't be afraid if that's you. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace. I pray for those even today, some acknowledge, some not, some not even in the room that for the first time have placed their trust in you and Lord have placed themselves in a story that has been going on for 2,000 years. I pray that you would give them courage to just take a next step, to go to Connect Point and get a Bible and some information about this new journey and about going public through baptism and that they, God, would begin to just take baby steps to be a part of this movement that now they have been adopted into as a child of God. And God, continue to do your thing through us. We know that today is just the beginning. It's part of this micro story you're writing through us that is part of a much bigger macro story in history, and we are so thankful to be a part. Lord, we are praying one prayer, that we would honor and glorify Jesus, and without blinking, that we would change this city, community, and beyond with his grace and his love. And we pray this in your name. Amen.